News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Canadians have done well to get vaccinated, right? Our our rates are good. Not good enough, though. We still have a ways to go. More than 73% of all Canadians of all age groups have at least one shot of the COVID-19 vaccine. But we still have that kind of small, stubborn group of people who are either hesitant or don't want to get vaccinated at all. There are a lot of factors that contribute to this, but also there's a lot of work being done into kind of what has led to this group of people being so anti-vaccine, being so anti-mandate on this. To talk more about this is Dr. Sipo Chen, who's an assistant professor of communications at Ryerson University. He's written an interesting article in the conversation. Dr. Chen, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Tell me, what is it that you were looking into when it comes to the anti-vaccine movement? Uh, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I got an alarm. Um, yeah. So, um, my research is actually about um. So my research is actually into um risk and crisis communication. So when I was um looking at the issue, so what actually interested me is actually motivated people to have kind of strong resistance to government policy and how you know communication, especially social media, play a key role in that process. So you're wondering, like, why is it that they seem so resistant? Why are they so resistant then? Um, so like I mentioned in the article, I think one of the key contributors to that is definitely, um, you know, social media function as an echo chamber, like, you know, because most, all the social media we use these days are kind of algorithm based. And, you know, the more you use it, the more kind of it kind of kind of trying to catering your own taste. So to the end, it's actually very difficult for you to actually see opinions from the other side. So for people who are kind of on the anti-vaccine side, right? So that's actually what kind of media environment they live in. The second factor is um, what I mentioned in the article called a solution aversion in the sense that many people go against the vaccine is they fundamentally ideologically opposed to, um, you know, this, uh, this idea of, you know, mandatory vaccination as a policy solution. So that just goes against with their, you know, fundamental beliefs. So that's also kind of triggered their strong resistance. Now, is this a group that also, you know, can be identified by the other things that they believe in? Um, I think so. But like I mentioned, um, I think another very important issue is still that we should make a difference between people who are hesitant about vaccination and people who are anti-vaxxers, right? So, you know, vaccine hesitancy can caused by a variety of factors, not only about, you know, political beliefs, but of course, right? So when we are talking about anti-vaxxers, when we are talking about, you know, people who are, we are talking about people who actually, you know, dare to, you know, go on the street and actually, you know, kind of protect against hospitals, right? I think we do, we can identify them, you know, by their other political leanings. Right. So you've got a larger group that might be hesitant. And then do you think it gets mm-hmm. smaller and smaller when you talk about how kind of radicalized they get? Yes. Is there anything that can be done then, Dr. Chen, to convince people otherwise? Um, I think there are, uh, um, in terms of convention, I think there are a couple of, you know, solutions that can be explored, right? So, First and foremost, like because we know this is caused by, you know, social media's echo chamber, there should be kind of certain measurement kind of reduce that. And uh, especially in 
when we kind of engage in kind of policy related conversations, right? So media should kind of really attentive to mis- misinformation and disinformation online, right? There should be more kind of tight regulation around that. Um, the second issue is actually who is going to do the persuasion with people who are hesitant and doubtful about vaccination. Um, research has constantly showed that, you know, actually instead of, you know, kind of federal government officials, actually it's more appropriate for people who are actually from the local level to actually contact and have a have kind of more deep conversation about these issues. So I think that also kind of actually raised a lot of requirement for people who, let's say if we are talking about Vancouver, right, we're talking about, you know, house workers who is on the community level who actually have a higher level of trust among people. So that puts a lot of kind of, you know, pressure on our local health workers. Right. And you but you actually wrote in the article, too, though, that you said it's unlikely that we can reduce vaccine resistance without increasing polarization. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of hardly the truth, right? Because, you know, vaccination itself has become such a polarized issue. So any kind of you know new measurements being introduced there has the chance to actually trigger more controversy. Um, but I'm personally actually I'm relatively um, optimistic. I think you know persuasion takes time. This is not definitely not a question that can be solved overnight. So um, you know it's difficult, but clearly there has to be some some early work to be done. Um, I think also we can see you know whether people are actually trying to other means of persuasion. You know, I think actually stories shared by people, we see those kind of stories, right? Stories shared by people who were hesitant about vaccination and then, you know, who got it. And those stories can be another way kind of starting the conversation. So you think that the more, I've seen a lot of those stories recently, right? Where somebody's mm-hmm. in the hospital and they're saying, get the vaccine. You think those work? I think that they will work in combination with other communication methods, right? So first, how to deliver those stories to people who are, you know, still kind of hesitant. And the second, the second thing is, you know, how, you know, kind of trying to deliver this kind of key message about, you know, vaccination should be depoliticized, right? We know that it is caused by the fact that, you know, this issue has been too political. So I think another way is kind of deliver those kind of messages to actually showing that this is this has nothing to do about, you know, all of this kind of there is no quote unquote a big plot behind this, right? This is simply a public measure that with the goal to actually protect the whole community. Right. But that is just that simple thing though, Dr. Chen, still seems mm-hmm. hard to get that message through to some people. Well, I mean that's kind of that's I think that's kind of the challenge. That's the, exactly the challenge, right? So you know, the perception of message is not totally determined by, you know, who sends it to the public. Right. All right, Dr. Chen, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Yeah, have a great evening. You no, too. Have a good morning. Good Sorry. morning. Yeah, believe me, we've got a lot of time to go here today. So thank you. That's Dr. Zibo Chen, Assistant Professor of Communications at Ryerson University. He's written this interesting article in the conversation. His research looks at essentially where the anti-vax movement is coming from and how it has been radicalized by kind of using the same tools as far-right political extremism. And it's the same pattern that follows through there. The question is, what is effective then against that, right? How do you combat that? This is Mornings with Simi. 
you were around Metrotown on Friday afternoon, you probably kind of saw, maybe experienced what felt like pandemonium, I think, for a lot of people. Shoppers, commuters evacuated due to reports of shots fired, potential report of a pipe bomb. But now Burnaby RCMP are investigating this as a potential swatting event. That's when someone intentionally phones in a phony emergency report to mobilize some kind of you know, police action. So let's find out what we know so far about what happened. Joining us is Burnaby RCMP Media Relations Officer, Corporal Michael Kalange. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. What do we know about what happened on Friday? Well, it's an ongoing investigation. Uh, I don't have a lot of new information. Uh, I, I can tell you that uh, there are several uh, local law enforcement agencies that are working on this uh, as we speak, have been, and, and will continue uh, to hopefully get a suspect and uh, find out who's responsible for this. So do you believe at this point it is some kind of cyber swatting event? Definitely. Uh, someone really wanted to ruin a lot of people's day on uh on Thursday last week. Yeah, it was a scary situation, kind of watching that unfold. Has Burnaby ever experienced something like that before? I don't believe we've seen anything this to this magnitude. Uh, we've had swattings in the past, and, and uh, they're usually a little, little more for um, distraction. Uh, they might want us in a certain area to do something, you know, whether they're on the other side of town doing something. But this was, uh, this was bigger than anything I've ever seen here. So what are the challenges then, Corporal Kalanj, in, in trying to investigate this? Well, when it comes to the internet, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of unknown. Uh, so you know, we we have to get warrants for anything that, that we have. You know, basically, when we get a call, um, depending on where it's coming from, we have to trace it. Uh, there's a lot to there's a lot going on there. Uh, but we do have specialized units that are working on that. We also have phenomenal partners in the Lower Mainland. Um, we had five or six different jurisdictions here, and uh, they're all continuing to uh, assist us. And so when you have to investigate something like this, does that turn into a much larger investigation? Like, you're obviously, this is a whole different level of cyber investigation, isn't it? It becomes a, a much larger investigation. Uh, it, the number of police officers, obviously, is nowhere near what we saw on Friday, but uh, it, it does become more technical and uh, more focused. Has there been an investigation like this before that you know of, like in BC? There's none that I know of uh, that were this, this scale. Uh, you know, our phones and our Twitter, everything was uh, ringing off the off the wall. We had uh, people all over looking for updates. I've never seen anything like this uh, in my almost 15 years of service in BC. So that makes it so challenging, doesn't it? Though, because like you can't, you obviously have to respond when you get reports like that. How do you how do you balance that now that you know this is also a potential? You know, we're we're kind of lucky here in the Lower Mainland. Uh, we never want to go to something like this. I mean, obviously, we're happy that it was false. To be honest, if it could have been the other way. Uh, that being said, uh, because we're in the Lower Mainland and we have, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of police officers from different jurisdictions, we were able to uh, do what we needed to do um, while still maintaining uh, policing levels across the city and, of course, the Lower Mainland. But, uh, yeah, very frustrating because... Uh, it really it sucked a lot of our our, uh, our numbers uh, from the detachment. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay, so then how many levels of police, like w- will this be a national effort as well from the RCMP? Because I imagine this would take some specialized investigation. Yeah, I don't know if it'll go national. Uh, we have most uh, sections in BC at our, at our headquarters here. So uh, we'll obviously be talking. I mean, it dep- depends on where the investigation leads. If we find that 
Um, the person responsible was outside of the country. Uh, we're going to have to get our national level involved, of course. But uh, it's, uh, it basically depends on what we find out, what we uh, uncover over the next few days. All right. Hopefully we'll get an update. Thank you for your time. For sure. Thanks a lot. That's Corporal Michael Kalanji, a media relations officer for Burnaby RCMP, talking about this, what is a very unique event that they faced on Friday afternoon. You probably saw some of the pictures, you know, police rushing into Metrotown while, you know, people are rushing out. They're trying to get everybody out of the mall. And essentially, they believe now that this was a potential swatting event where somebody kind of calls in. Uh, a reported threat that involves a huge police presence. And as you heard them say, they are definitely going to be pursuing an investigation to find out who was responsible for that one. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, parents out there, today is a change in the school system. Today is the day that the mandatory mask rule starts taking effect for kindergarten to grade three. Right up until, well, today it had been grades four to grade 12 had to wear masks while indoors, and that is now expanding. So to talk more about this whole situation and what brought us here, uh, joining us now is Jennifer Whiteside, the Minister of Education. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. Were you concerned about the numbers? Like when you saw what was happening, like what led to this change? Well, I think as as we've done throughout the pandemic, we've been monitoring the impact of the pandemic in schools and looking at what's been happening in communities and school districts for sure have been making adjustments. Public health has been making adjustments as we go. And I think this really reflects one of those uh, well, one of those adaptations to keep keep up with where uh, with how the pandemic's evolving. There certainly earlier that week we had seen from uh, Dr. Henry and Minister Dix a presentation about a uh, about an increase in uh, in cases amongst younger uh, younger kids. And I should just say as well that in terms of the mask uh, requirements that had been in place in the previous school year, as you said, they were a requirement for grades four to twelve and for all staff in the system. <clears throat> but but we've always strongly encouraged uh, younger uh, kids to wear masks as well. And, and I know that educators and school communities have uh, really done a lot of work over the course of last year to um, to help the little ones along and to create uh, uh, positive cultures of mask wearing in schools. So I think in very many places, this is just a sort of a natural evolution. Right. But given that it's still so early in the school year, it's barely beginning of October here. Do you do you wish that this had happened earlier? Like, should the school year not have started with this provision? Well, I think that the decision that we made in August, because if you, if you recall in June when we announced what we anticipated would be happening in September, and we we said that we would reserve on some some decisions like uh, the masking uh, requirements until much closer to the year, until we could uh, sort of have have an assessment about how how things were developing. And indeed, in August when we finalized the the, the plans, the decision uh, our decision was to the decision from public health was to keep. Uh, maintain the, the requirements as they had been in the previous school year. That was something that everybody was used to. There was no big change there. Uh, and, you know, now as the school year started, we've sort of moved, just you know, gradually moved into this other, um, to, to this other requirement. So I, I, I think it's, I think public health is always looking at how, how the pandemic is evolving and what the impact is on, on schools and, and making decisions appropriately. What's the next step, though? Right. Like, obviously, something has to be done here. There are a lot of cases in schools. Are you considering making vaccinations mandatory for teachers and support staff? Well, I know that there's been a, been a lot of discussion about that. Uh, I mean, public health, I think, right, right now is very, um, uh, very focused on the, uh, the, the mandatory requirement in, uh, in health care, where, of course, we have seen in healthcare settings 
uh, you know, very, very drastic outcomes of COVID, particularly in, in long-term care amongst, uh, amongst elders. So, uh, you know, public health is always looking at the, at, at, um, at, at how things need to, how, how measures need to evolve. I, I'd say that, that, that we haven't taken anything sort of out of, nothing is out of, out of consideration. Um, but at this moment, what, what we know for sure is that what's happening in schools, and this has re- remained very constant throughout the pandemic, what's happening in schools reflects what's happening in our communities. And so we know that, uh, that where we have lower rates of vaccination, those uh, that condition is creating a riskier environment for schools and so uh, working to really get those vaccination rates up in communities where, where they're not quite high enough yet that that really needs to be where we where we really redouble our efforts right well, what is the process for this though minister whiteside do you raise questions with public health officials when you have concerns if you see the numbers rising or do you wait for them to come to you well, I'd say it's a much more dynamic process than that because we meet regularly in education with a provincial steering committee that uh, has representatives from all of our partner groups and, and right holders uh, on it. And uh, public health, uh, uh, the, the Center for Disease Control is also part of that steering committee. Uh, so that happens at a provincial level, and that's an opportunity for all of our partners, including my staff, to come to the table to uh, raise trends, to look at what we may need to be doing differently. How do we implement the safety guidelines? What do districts need? What do schools need in terms of information, communication, support um, to actually be able to uh, ensure that the safety plans are being implemented in, uh, in the most robust way possible? And then at the regional level, School districts are always working with their school medical health officers in the health authorities. And, of course, they have a relationship anyway because of, you know, school vaccination programs, et cetera. Uh, and those, uh, those relationships really, I'd say, have been deepened over the course of the pandemic because they've, uh, they, they've had to be working really, really closely together as they track what's happening in particular, particular regions. Right. Where are we on the ventilation issue? I know that Ontario has put a lot of time and effort into school ventilation. It's made a difference there. Where are we on that? Well, you know, I had a I had an opportunity uh, over the summer as we started the school year to talk to a lot of school boards and a lot of um, uh, and some school staff about facilities managers about their about their approach. And I think, as you may know, we put um, uh, eighty seven and a half million dollars uh, over the last two budgets into ventilation, seventy seven and a half million from our uh, from our provincial capital budget, but also ten million from the from the federal COVID uh, money last year. And that money went to districts, and districts absolutely used that money to do what we asked them to do, which was to regularly uh, inspect and maintain the systems that they had to look at where they could do upgrades and make sure that they were doing taking all of the steps necessary to ensure they were meeting the standards that are recommended uh, that are recommended federally. And, and we've seen over the summer uh, school boards. Uh, starting to report out on how that work is going. So in the Vancouver School Board, for example, um, uh, you know, they, they of course, they, all of the boards employ professional staff who are responsible for maintaining these systems. And in the bigger school boards, of course, that's a really, that's a very big, uh, that's a very big job because they have a lot of, uh, a lot of infrastructure to, to take care of. Uh, and so that work's been happening. Those upgrades have been happening in many school districts. They've reported that on their website. So if parents are interested or concerned, they can certainly go to the to the website and look at what the uh, look at what the uh, what the school board's done. In, in my own community of New Westminster, I we picked a really good job of really breaking down what the ventilation looks like in every uh, in, in every school. And then where those where where there are, are classrooms that are relying on natural ventilation. 
in in many cases that that's that's where portable HEPA filters have come have been have right. been have have come into play, such as Abbotsford. That that's where they're. Um, that that's an investment that they've made in Abbotsford, for example, and other school districts. Well, we know that prior to the announcement made by yourself and Dr. Bonnie Henry about the mandatory masset, some school districts had had moved on that on their own. Vancouver School Board, the Surrey School District has done that as well. Do you support the idea of districts taking more stringent measures on their own if they feel the need that that's necessary? Well, I, you know, I think that one thing we don't want to do right now is become sort of fragmented and have different conditions in one district versus another district. I think that doesn't make a lot of sense to parents. And that last week was a very dynamic week where things were moving very quickly. We were having discussions sort of provincially at the beginning of the week with a, uh, you know, and by the end of the week, we wound up in a, in a place that I think we, we, we sort of an, anticipated uh, that, 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 we would, that we would wind up in. And I, I, I want to just take a moment to really applaud the work that school, uh, that school boards have done. I think our trustees have been uh, really in a tough job throughout this pandemic. Nobody anticipated that when they ran to be school board trustee last year that they'd wind up uh, really having to be the front line and take that uh, let that leadership to a whole whole new level. And they've really stepped up to do that along with all of our educators and school staff and district leadership. So uh, I, I think that we that that we work we work very closely and very in concert with them. We're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to to just support them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think what we're seeing now is that. Things that there's a more a somewhat of a more regional flavor to the way the the way the, the way this fourth wave is playing out in school districts in some communities where we have very high rates of vaccination and uh, not a lot of exposures necessarily happening um, in schools. There's a different feeling than there is in some communities where uh, where where there are where there where, where we are seeing um, a lot of exposures. So that that's something that of course. Um, medical health officers, public health is is really is really working with this and time. So, just to reiterate, then, Minister Whiteside, is everything is still on the table, even potentially the idea of making vaccinations mandatory for teachers and support staff. Well, I don't think public health is going to rule out any single tool in how to in how to fight this pandemic, and so I don't. I, I, you know, I think that they're that they're that they're going to continue to monitor. We're going to see in a couple of weeks. We're going to see the um, the report that Dr. Henry was talking about earlier in the. Um, uh, uh, last week at the announcement, where uh, they'll have an opportunity. They need a. They need several weeks of of, of solid information to analyze um, with respect to how how we're doing uh, so far this school year. They're gonna they're gonna let us know what uh, mm-hmm. what what that data tells us, and 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 then they're gonna act accordingly. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much, Sammy. Have a good day. You Bye-bye. too. That's Jennifer Whiteside, the Minister of Education, talking about all the possibilities still ahead for the school year. Mass mandate K-12 takes effect today. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the coastal gas link project that is underway in our province. We know it's been controversial. We know there have been protesters. They've established blockades to try to prevent the project from moving forward. But not everybody agrees with that approach, especially since you have some members of the local Indigenous community there who support this project. Joining us now to talk more about this is Ellis Ross. He is the MLA for that area, of course, or for Skeena, I should say, also running for the BC Liberal leadership. But he's saying essentially that the protesters here need to stand down. And thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Well, now, why do you think they need to stand down? What, what would be the point of that? Well, because every First Nation from Prince George to Kitimat, along with some First Nations on the, on the west coast of BC, 
signed on to LNG Canada and Chevron after years of consultation accommodation. They actually followed the rule book that was laid out by the courts of BC and Canada. And they were actually trying to breathe life into Section 35 of the Constitution, which actually nobody's been able to do since 1982. So it was an incredible accomplishment, and nobody understands it or even wants to acknowledge it. So where's the disconnect coming from then? Because this has been an ongoing issue, right, where we know that the local Indigenous groups do support this. So then what's going on? Well, the local groups you're talking about are communities, and they're represented by band councils that were elected under a democratic process. And, it, and make no mistake, this consultation has been going on since at least 2006. And so what's going on is that the general public just doesn't understand the basics, not only of what the, these Native communities are going through and what they're trying to accomplish, but actually what actually happened between the corporations, the B.C. government, the federal government, and these First Nations over the last 15 years. Is this a problem, Ellis, that you think we're going to see more of? We've seen some of this on Vancouver Island as well, where there seems to be a disconnect between what protesters want to protest versus what the local Indigenous you know, community wants. Oh, there'll, there'll be more disconnect because, you know, this is all clouded over by politics. I mean, you, you have politicians uh, that show up to these protests and encourage them and embolden them. I, we even have the NDP government, even when they were government, showing up to support these blockades. And remember, this blockade, this actually led to, led to the shutdown of Canada not only just two years ago. And nobody really talked about the reality of what was on the ground in terms of these First Nation leaders who actually did their job by looking out for the communities in the first place. So then how do they convey this to the protesters? Has there been any communication? There's been a tremendous amount of communication, but nobody wants to listen to an elected leader from a small First Nation community. Uh, the headlines are actually more dramatic. They're more, when you think about, say, a hereditary leader, for example, versus a democratically elected leader, nobody wants to listen to a democratically elected leader, especially when they're trying to resolve poverty, suicide, when they're trying to resolve a quality of life uh, that, that they were actually achieving. Every First Nation was achieving this, not only with LNG, but with forestry, with mining. Uh, BC had come a long way uh, ever since 2004. And we had progress, especially when we were addressing Aboriginal issues, social issues that nobody else can solve. So the, the young public is actually just not seeing this because it's not reported enough. Right. How do you, so if we listen to the elected leaders, but then it seems there's always somebody who's saying, well, no, I'm the, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the inherited leader here. What should we be listening to? Listen, listen to the facts. I mean, look, look at uh, what we're talking about right now in terms of that blockade for LNG. Nobody actually raised an eyebrow when a female leader, three of them, in fact, got stripped of their hereditary status in Wisutan territory because they supported LNG. Nobody said a word. In this day and age of not only trying to support Aboriginal people, we're trying to support women as well. Nobody said a word. And this is what the general public just seems to throw a blind eye to. But, Ellis, I have to ask then, so where is that decision going to be made? Is that a decision that, like, we have to make in the rest of the community, or is this something the Indigenous community needs to figure out which voice they're going to be speaking with? Which voice counts? That's exactly right. Every community's got to decide this. Uh, you know, 
By the way, when this all started for our community, there was no question about Aboriginal leadership in terms of hereditary versus elected. There was none. There was no opportunity. But as soon as that opportunity came in, outsiders came into our community and actually used that for their own advantage. They actually used that for their own cause. And so this is what happens. This is what happens when you get political leaders going in there to use it for their own elected purposes. I mean, think about this. First Nations in Canada, in terms of their social issues, has been described as Canada's shame. The only people that have been able to resolve these social issues are Aboriginal leaders themselves, elected leaders. Why are we not supporting them and showing them the respect they deserve? So you feel the only people that we should listen to on these issues are those who are elected by the band members? No, but we shouldn't ignore them. Why are they being disrespected in this manner? Why did the NDP say that we all have to remember that elected band councils were created to annihilate the Indian? But Why then, I don't, okay, but Ellis, then if they say, okay, if, if the elected ban puts out a statement, is that how that community feels, or do we then also take the word of a hereditary leader from the community? Well, the elected leader was elected to do that job. And if the community has an issue with our leadership, the community's got to figure it out, just like the same way we had to figure it out. But, you know, we, we, don't, we don't leave room for this. We actually allow all these outsiders to come in and manipulate our communities and actually get used for a different cause. But you know what? In the, the 14 years that I was elected leader, councillor and chief councillor, in no way was I out to annihilate my own people. I was not out to do that. I was trying to get them to stop committing suicide, the poverty of violence, stop them from going to prison, stop our kids from going to government care. This is more important than the politics that uh, all these politicians are playing So these protesters then at different groups, right? Different protesters at different areas around BC then. What do you say to them? Have a heart. Have a heart. And then respect the democratically elected leaders of these First Nation communities. I mean, the rule of law, I understand the rule of law is actually being broken down all across BC, whether we're talking about the crime on the streets or whether it's the crime of uh, unlawful protests. And by the way, I do support lawful protests. But not if you're breaking the law and not if you're you're impeding somebody else's rights to pursue their life. But in this case here, LNG was not only uh, something meant to actually build up First Nation communities, it was a nation builder. It was supposed to build up Canada. It was supposed to put BC on the map in terms of energy exports. And there's a lot of questions here that we have to look at if we're going to actually look at stopping something like this in an unlawful manner. Uh, Listen, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thank you very much. It's Ellis Ross. He's the MLA for Skeena, also running for the BC Liberal leadership. But essentially, he's been talking about the protesters at sites like the Coastal Gaslink Project in the northern part of the province there and saying, telling them they need to stand down. He said, you know what, the local Indigenous community there wants this project, and that should be respected. And of course, this is an ongoing issue, right? We see this on Vancouver Island as well, is that do we pick and choose which Indigenous leaders we listen to, to claim support, you know, for your stand? Or do you listen to the elected band leaders? It's an interesting discussion. This is Mornings with Simi. We have a growing problem in our long-term care homes once again. As of September the 29th, there have been 21 active cases of COVID-19 outbreaks 
in BC long-term care homes. Now that number is down from what we saw, you know, at the toughest points of last winter, but still people are dying. And a lot of those cases are in our long-term care homes. What needs to be done to change this situation? Joining us now is Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Terry, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me, Simi. Have you been kind of looking at these numbers and getting more and more apprehensive? Yes, of course. Uh, You know, we thought we were through the worst. Uh, The vaccine made such a difference. And of course, seniors uh, living in care bore the brunt of COVID-19 deaths uh, over the last year and a half. We thought we were out of the woods with a highly effective vaccine. Uh, But now in this fourth wave, uh, we're seeing more outbreaks. Uh, more people affected and, of course, more people dying. We've had over, I think, 40 deaths in the last uh, couple of months. And as you mentioned, 21 current outbreaks in long-term care-assisted living and seniors' independent living. So it's definitely a concern. Um, I, you know, I think the ministry and, and the uh, provincial health officer recognize uh, the concern. We are getting the third uh, dose um, coming up uh, starting this week. And Hopefully that'll make a difference. You know, we had hoped that that would have started earlier as it did in Alberta. And, uh, you know, perhaps we might have saved a few more people. And also the process of making sure that all staff, like mandatory vaccinations happen, that's going on right now too, isn't it? It is. Uh, as of October 12th, uh, so we're, you know, eight days away uh, from that deadline for all uh, workers in long-term care to be fully vaccinated. Uh, so that has... Um, that will make a difference because some people in in some homes, uh, you know, just had this hesitancy. And we, we saw rates of 30, 40, 50 percent vaccination rates among staff. And primarily uh, the virus has gotten into homes through staff. So, you know, we, we don't think it occurs in, uh, in the sense of visitors bringing it in, but uh, there may be some cases where that happens. And so currently visitors don't have to be vaccinated. And that's maybe... Uh, an oversight that we need to address as well. So at this point, are you feeling like every little thing might make a difference? Well, if that's your loved one in care, everything makes a difference. Uh, And so we we just simply have to do every single thing we can. And operators uh, and staff working in long-term care, of course, are burned out. Uh, People are deciding to retire. Uh, They've been running on empty for a long time now. And uh, so they just need to have to know that everyone is doing everything possible, including the Ministry of Health, uh, the provincial health officer uh, and uh, families, uh, that everyone is doing everything they can to protect uh, their loved ones in care. Because, as I said, such a shame to go through all this and then lose someone to COVID when we have such a highly effective vaccine available. Are you hearing about staffing issues at long-term care homes? I've been hearing from a number of them that say they've got a real staffing crunch going on right now. No question. I mean, we've had a staffing crunch uh, for years, but it was exacerbated during COVID. Uh, And while the single site order limiting people to working in only one home made a lot of sense when we didn't have a vaccine, it did deplete the casual pool uh, that was available to fill in when people were on holidays or people uh, were sick. Um, We have some limited exemption to that single site order now, but it's not working very effectively. So, you know, we've asked the public or the uh, provincial health officer to consider exemptions for fully vaccinated workers because the public health imperative of that order seems to have passed with with the vaccine. 
And that will just make such a difference to those operators that are uh, short-staffed and to the people that are working on those short-staffed lines. Um, so, you know, I, I think we need to do everything we can because come October 12th, if some people decide they want to leave the profession rather than get vaccinated, we could be seeing uh, some operations with, you know, 10 or 12 percent of their staff uh, leaving, and that would put care at uh, severe risk. Do you have a sense that that may actually happen? I mean, have you heard from some of the providers about this? Yes, we've heard, uh, you know, we did a, a town hall last week and um, uh, did a survey. Uh, up to 10% of staff in some operations uh, have indicated they they will leave. Now, we've seen in other jurisdictions where vaccination mandates have come into effect that uh, some people do decide to get the vaccine. So I'm hopeful that what people say uh, at the beginning isn't what they'll actually do towards the end uh, of that vaccine mandate. And in fact, we've heard from from operators that say some people have started uh, to get their vaccine program underway. So another request we have of the provincial health office is if staff, existing staff, have started their vaccination program to allow them to continue to work wearing masks and being rapid tested before each shift, knowing that they're going to complete their vaccination protocol within 35 days. Okay, so is there something then, Terry, that you would like the government to consider doing in addition to what's been done so far, just to get a handle on what's happening right now? Yeah, well, those two things, really, uh, allowing fully vaccinated workers to work in more than one location, that will provide relief. And then for those existing staff members that were not vaccinated but have been convinced to start, uh, that uh, allow them some more time to complete their vaccination series rather than being put on uh, a leave of absence without pay. That, again, will help avoid a potential catastrophic uh, job sh- uh, or a work uh, shortages come October 12th. That would be a big one, though, allowing employees to move between long-term care homes. Are we ready for that? Well, I mean, the vaccine is is the key. Uh, and if people, uh, workers are fully vaccinated, and again, they should be eligible for that third booster, we hope, very soon, uh, then they're they're not going to be taking the the virus into into homes, uh, and you know the we have to consider the risk uh, benefit ratio here. If if we say it's too risky to allow vaccines to move between homes, well, what about the risk of having short staff uh, so that you cannot look after people properly? That may mean that you can't admit new people into long term care. It may mean that people have to stay in bed all day. And quality of life is severely impacted by that. So it is a risk-benefit ratio that has to be carefully considered. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks so much, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, I feel like it's that time of year when we talk about all things great pumpkin. Yes, and that is exactly what a North Vancouver man has been working on. Our Raji Sohol joins us now to tell us more about that. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, this pumpkin grower is called uh, Jeff Peltier, and actually his day job is quite different. He's not a farmer of any kind. He's a flutist, and he, a while ago, was inspired by Charlie Brown's Great Pumpkin, the comic strip, and to, to grow a massive pumpkin just in his yard. So I caught up with him after his pumpkin was being picked up by a crane and transported to Langley to show off and compete with other uh, massive pumpkins. Here's Jeff, Jeff Peltier. This year, you've outdone yourself. So just how big is your pumpkin, Neptune? Thirteen to 1,400 pound range. 
which uh, for BC, that's actually quite large. If it goes anything above 1350, it'll be in the top 10 all-time biggest pumpkins grown in BC. That is just amazing. And is it organic? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, There's a couple of schools of thought. Some people will throw everything with the kitchen sink at their pumpkin. I'm much more, because I have limited space growing in North Vancouver, uh, I can't, I don't have the luxury of rotating fields, etc. So I try and make sure very, very healthy soil subculture and uh, everything is organic. How much more challenging is it to have grown an organic pumpkin than one that you've pumped with uh, pesticides and whatnot? Yeah, and that's the that's the that's the interesting point. It's not so much the fertilizer program because that's typically organic. It's more pesticides and uh, fungicides. So here it's so so uh, damp in BC that we're quite susceptible to powdery mildew. Um, so that's one of the challenges and uh, finding a good organic. Um, means by which to keep that under control is is pretty challenging. But I guess that genetics must play a role in growing a pumpkin that big. So what did it take to grow it? Yeah, so and that that actually lends itself to the name. So uh, the pumpkin it was uh, it comes from a seed by a grower out in Ohio named Bill Neptune. And the parent pumpkin was actually 2,008 pounds. Uh, and it was uh, it was an older seed that they had found that they had forgot about the the club there in Ohio does a, a seed uh, sale and I had uh, seen some of the other pumpkins that were grown from the seed so I knew it was a proven seed so put my hat in the ring for that and uh, was lucky to get get a couple of those seeds. What yeah. about all of the extreme weather that we had in BC? We had that heat dome. So how have you uh, protected the giant pumpkin from pests and extreme weather? Yeah, it was really challenging. I mean, we had a great early spring. It was quite dry. Um, and then the heat dome hit. And, you know, the plants were so established by that point that um, it was challenging because if it wasn't a, confi- a confined sort of space, you could always just shade the plant a bit. But when the plant's starting to spread out over the garden, the only choice you have is to, to periodically miss the plant throughout the day. And luckily, <laughs> kind of a side one of the very few side benefits to COVID, I was actually working, still working from home uh, at that time. So I was able to go out a couple of times during the day and just miss the plant off with uh, cool water to try and keep it cool, but definitely way, way, way too hot. And then the only other thing is even though you've missed the plant and it hasn't you know, immediately died because of the heat, uh, it does cause a stress to the plant. So that shows up later in the season. So normally my plant during this time of year um, would still be looking quite fresh and, and, and good. But uh, this year, it, it, it looks a bit worse for wear, and that was because of the two the two heat waves that we had. Okay, Jeff, so I'm trying to picture this. During the heat dome, all of us were melting in our homes. A lot of us didn't have air conditioning, and you were stepping out and spraying, misting your <laughs> giant pumpkin back to health <laughs> several times a day. What did your neighbors think? Uh, well, I, I think they all think I'm a little crazy as it is, but... Uh, but I, they, they were asking, you know, how, how's the pumpkin? Does it survive the heat dome? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we, got, it to, we got it through. So <laughs> I'm one of the few growers that uh, has very, very limited space to try and be very efficient with that. Oh, I'm so fascinated by this, Raji. So what is he doing with the seeds from his giant pumpkin? 
Yeah. So you caught there that genetics plays a really big role in why Neptune got so big. So he'll give all the seeds of Neptune to a nursery that can distribute them uh, to basically grow the hobby in the province. He thinks that pumpkin growing happens relatively easily uh, in Vancouver, in Metro Vancouver. And so it's a, it's a good hobby for people to take up. And uh, the pumpkin is on display at It's About Time Nursery. And on Sunday, October 17th, you can see First Nations totem carver, Jerry Sheena, um, take a turn at turning it into something really beautiful. Because although it is massive and that in and of itself is very impressive to me, it's not the prettiest pumpkin. It's lopsided <laughs> and <laughs> funny looking. I mean, it's got a lot of character. <laughs> but you know, it's funny you say that because as I was listening to you and Jeff there, I googled, you know, giant pumpkins because I wanted to see what they look like. And uh, you know, Jeff's certainly not alone in growing a misshapen giant pumpkin because I feel like it's hit and miss for some. Some of them just look like they've melted because yes. they end up on their side. But then some, no, none of them are actually perfect because they're so big. Because they are massive. And just over the weekend, Richmond's David Chan grew one over 1,900 pounds. Uh, but of course, that was uh, grown in a greenhouse with an irrigation system and whatnot. I thought I was just so impressed by with how uh, Jeff Peltier grew his just in his little yard. I mean, it looks like a little yard once you grow a massive pumpkin in it anyway. I guess it takes up a lot of space. Uh, yes. I wouldn't want to be around, though, when they cut that thing open because there's, there's something that I really don't like the smell of. It's the like when you're like carving pumpkins. I just hate that smell. The carving is okay. It's the decomposing that happens afterwards that doesn't smell wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. So would you ever do this? Would you ever competitively grow a vegetable like that? You know what? I was actually inspired. I thought this doesn't seem that hard to do. I mean, yes, a massive one. Okay. I would be happy if I could grow a three pound pumpkin. So I think I might try doing something like that. Lately, I've been walking through uh, the alleys in my neighborhood rather than the main streets. Just something I love to do in fall because you get the sound of the leaves crunching beneath your feet a little bit more. And I've been noticing how many of my neighbors grow pumpkins and squash uh, in their backyards. Uh, it looked in some streets that the majority of my neighbors even grow. So I was thinking, hey, maybe this is something that I could try. Again, I don't think I would aim for something massive, but uh, oh, just your kids my would love it. A, a little something small, yeah. Isn't it pumpkin buying season, wouldn't you say? Right now, I've already seen a lot of homes with pumpkins out front. Yeah, and I've been noticing that they've got a lot of character this year. I've been seeing white ones, uh, green pumpkins, lots of bumpy ones. I know they're just like all in the squash territory, but um, yeah, they've got a lot of character this year. And I think I'm going to head to Richmond Country Farms probably in the next couple of weekends with my kids to choose some, pick some there, and and then... uh, you know, probably carve something Star Wars related into them. <laughs> I was going to say Richmond Country Market. Good luck. You're a brave soul trying to go there on the weekend to get a pumpkin. <laughs> Thanks for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal talking about the giant pumpkin grown by Jeff Peltier that you can see it. It's about time nursery. Just take a Google of them and you'll find out where that is.